1: So you want to be a rock and roll star? No? Well, how about a podcast star? Well, as it turns out, there's a new all-in-one platform just for you. It's called Anchor, and it's the easiest way to make a podcast. And check this out. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And then Anchor will distribute the podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and, you know, everywhere else in, uh, in podcast land. And what's even better, you can actually make money from your podcast. Go figure, Uh, no minimum listenership on that. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So go ahead, download the free Anchor app right now or go to anchor.fm to get started. So what are you waiting for? Podcast stardom is within your reach. Hey, welcome to Kyle Meredith with, I'm Kyle Meredith. I'm the guy in the title. It's an ongoing interview series presented by 91.9 WFPK Independent Louisville and Consequence of Sound. Today, I'm going to be talking with Dan Wilson of the band Semisonic, their 1998 sophomore album Feeling Strangely Fine turning 20 years old this month. So I'm going to get the whole story, the backstory on the record that the record label said had no singles to it, which of course spurred closing time, Secret Smile, Seeing It In My Sleep. Dan Wilson's also responsible for writing some of the biggest hits for Adele and, and Taylor Swift and the Dixie Chicks and Halsey, and uh, we're going to get into that as well. Dan Wilson of Semisonic. Hi, Kyle. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you? Fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah. Are you ready to head back to 1998 again? <laughs> I am
2: ready to head back to 1998 whenever it seems necessary to do so.
1: I, I imagine that you have to sort of probably head back to that year every so often anyway.
2: You know, it's interesting because um, my last album, Recovered, was uh, um, a, a kind of a, a collection of re re-cuttings by me of songs that I've written for other people. And, you know, we talked about, and it was like a, a, a more a broader trip through various times in the past and it was it was a little bit disorienting and sometimes thinking about you know closing time or feeling strangely fine or uh secret smile or semi sonic is is a little bit disorienting because it, it was such an intense you know seven or eight years of our lives and uh you know, it still looms large and as you can guess i hear songs from that that album like at home depot you know on the speakers and things like that <laughs> so it's,
1: it's kind of weird i mean you guys <laughs> You were a band, what? As long as the Beatles, right? That was. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah.
2: So, what was their problem? <laughs>
1: What was their problem? Question we've been asking for 50 years now. For years, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you, you know, seriously, this record, it, 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 well, you know, it's still played in Home Depot and everything because it's it's this record exceeds its own genre. Looking back on it, you know, pop rock was in a great spot in 1998. Right. Uh, you know, there was so yeah. many great releases around there, and it was, you know, we all know what sort of happened after that with radio and, and right. popular rock music, which was a very bad moments in the history of rock <laughs> but you know i think it was
2: well, what happened after nirvana was at least in rock music it be it, it it started to get pretty forgettable really quickly you know compared to that several years during that during that stretch then things got i think maybe formulaic and started to get kind of forgettable but we came along at a really good time i i, I feel yeah i'm very lucky
1: and then even but I 'll say even beyond you know that moment in that genre, like this record holds up so well i've spent all morning once again listening to it i've probably heard the record a thousand times over twenty years you know it's it it's definitely in my all time favorite albums Amazing. of all time you know it's just one of those things wow. and you know what's really uh, interesting about it i I can only
2: I really have to discount my opinions about it, but at least I have a little more objectivity you know at the time, there were a bunch of things about semisonic that made us a little bit like outliers, even though we were, obviously, we, we did fine. But, you know, my singing didn't have that kind of ultra-masculine kind of goat boy quality that a lot of the bands had. And and at times people were kind of annoyed because I, I in a way I think I, I sang in a plainer way, like a, just a Midwestern dude talking sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I think in a way that makes the record less dated, because it still kind of sounds like a, a guy, you know, singing in a band, obviously, but also talking with his, you know, kind of Midwestern accent. And and uh, that, I think, kind of helped us not, you know, the record not be dated. And I have to say, Bob Claremont's mix of the record is really kind of natural band in a room times a thousand, you know, right, uh, right. Kind, of, kind of sound, so it doesn't have the kind of ouchy gimmicky tones even that a lot of the, the singles had at that time.
1: You don't suffer from what so many artists suffer from, especially not just the 90s, but like the 80s when you would have that, you know, oh super God. compressed yeah. drum or whatever, you know, on top of it. And, and yeah. Oh, those poor people. Yeah, I I, <laughs> I feel, feel
2: so bad. I feel so bad for some of the artists uh, whose, whose tracks, uh, you know, perfectly good songs mm-hmm. from the 80s, but that just sound so... Dismal. I mean, like, I, not, you know, I, I, some of the greatest songwriting. Like, there's a few songs by Tears for Fears that have the most amazing songwriting. Right. You know, the '80s, but the, but the sounds are so so kind of gimmicky, <laughs> you know, sounding. It's it, it just it's it's rough because you want to. You want to be doing what's fresh and new, but sometimes that leads, you know. Yeah. And how are path. you to
1: know at the time? You know, how are you to know right then that that's happening? But and
2: no, exactly. At the time, you you just you're just going with your, your sort of um, enthusiasm and your excitement and what sounds cool, and it's, there's nothing. You know, none of us can guess what's going to be lasting. I have to say one third thing, if I can say like, I, I I'll toot my own heart a little bit. I was when I was uh, working on uh, the songs for. For feeling strangely fine, I was thinking a lot about Simon and Garfunkel and Carol King and The Beatles and stuff that had come quite a bit before, but that I thought of as like really classic, and I was telling my record label that, and they were really bummed because that seemed to them like a formula for irrelevance, you know, like Simon and Garfunkel, are you insane? But I really wanted to get the those songwriting you know that's like those bones you know mm-hmm. in into the songs. I really wanted to make it. I really wanted to at least have that, the DNA of that kind of great, you know, greatness from, you know, even from Carole King's, you know, New York period.
1: Yeah. Well done. You did it. And, <laughs> and then to, to turn around, because you turned this in, and, and as I remember from the story, the record company said it didn't have any singles, right? Is that is that no, part of the story? No,
2: that's right. They, yeah. They said, um, yes, it, that's correct. No, they thought there were no singles uh, <laughs> and told us to go back to the drawing board oh, geez. and yeah. And I was, I was, you know, it's funny because they did it in a way that was, uh, they did it in a clever way because I'm a, I, at the time I was so into making records. I was so into recording. I still am. But at the time I was so like, I was so motivated by just studio time and it was expensive and, and, you know, it was, a true a, of a luxury and a treat to be able to go into a studio and record and the way they presented it was we don't think there are any singles dan and we'd be happy to send you back in the studio for you know a bunch more weeks and make some more tracks and i was like whoa man that sounds great i'd love that you know and then my manager jim had to kind of like shake me and say wait do you think there are hits on this record and i said yeah of course there are hits on this record is it like Closing Time and, and Secret Smile and Singing in My Sleep. And he goes, well, if you go back and, and, and make a, a bunch more tracks, which tracks do you think the record company will choose for, for singles? Will they choose the ones that were already there that they said were not singles, or will they, will they choose the new ones? And I said, well, hmm, I, guess they'll, I guess they'll choose the new ones. And then my manager said, okay, well, go back into the studio and make more songs. If you can guarantee that the next... Four things you write and record are better than closing time, secret smile, singing in my sleep. And I said, "Are you crazy? I can't guarantee (laughs) that I'm going to do better than that." And he goes, "Okay, well, just don't answer your phone for like a month." And finally, the label uh, they called and called and tried to get my attention and uh, to convince me, and I ignored everybody for a month. And then they finally said, "Okay, we'll put it out. It's your funeral." (laughs) <laughs> that was a good funeral. People that, that you a, never know. You, yeah, exactly. It, was, it, was, it turned out fine, but you really never know. And you can't blame people for not being able to spot a hit in advance. You know? Yeah,
1: that's that's amazing. It's ma I mean, and that story. You know, you, you're not the only one. Obviously, that's happened to. That's that. There's some pretty famous right. moments of like that through history. But still, just now that we can look back, now that we have the luxury of hindsight, you know, to be able to look back on that, That's yeah. it's just mind-blowingly yeah. amazing.
2: Yeah, and the fa- and and also they, the, you know. Once the once the decision was made to put "Feeling Strangely Fine" out, even though the label thought there were no singles, they got behind it and they did their best, and it turned out great. So, I like, it. I don't even have hard feelings about it because. It's not like they just buried us, right? You know, MCA really like put forth a a huge effort, and all the I I still am friends with a bunch of people from the label. They rose to the occasion amazingly.
1: I I will say, I wonder if there was a bit of projecting or hopefulness on your part when I now when I look at like this will be my year. You know, Mm -hmm. that, that song is included on there. It's like okay, you know that that first record you know, you you guys got some nice acclaim off that, probably some college play and, you know, some critical acclaim. You know, it didn't take you all the way there. Putting a song like this will be my year on the record uh, now seems to me like, okay, this is it. This is going to do it.
2: You know, it's funny because um, that song was written by uh, the drummer in the band, Jake Slichter. Mm -hmm. And he, he had a way of writing every like two years, he would write something that would just sum up some aspect of where we were at, you know, some, uh, he would write a song. He, he didn't write a lot of songs, but every couple of years he would write a song that just like said it all about where the band was at or where we were at with our circle of friends. And this will be my year was totally captured our kind of, you know, hopefulness, overconfidence, but the song has a kind of, you know, there's an ironic edge to it Mm -hmm. because it's in the, in the end, you don't feel like ultra confident about the guy singing the song. You're just like, (laughs) yes, please. I I want you to win also, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So it's, I, 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 yeah, I, I love that song and what it, and what it says. And it really was kind of a, an anthem for us in a fun way.
1: Yeah. Now was closing time an instant success out of the gate? I don't remember the trajectory there. Yeah. um, Closing
2: time, once they decided to put it out as a single, uh things moved very quickly. I can't remember there were a couple of stations around the country that had you know played our songs from Great Divide the album before and then when closing time came out, there was definitely a predisposition to try, to try it and it had this funny um history you know the the whole thing of like researching listeners was i don't I'm sure it's still um just as important as it's always been, but at the time when they tried to research whether anybody recognized closing time, they used the chorus, I know who I want to take me home. And the research came back so bad, and they were so disappointed and sad. And then our camp said, no, research the verse. That's the one that has the title in it. And then they researched the verse, and it was like a smash. And so then they started, people started playing it. It's also weird and dorky in the end. But I think the, thing, the song became a hit much faster than anybody in our camp expected and we were suddenly in an incredible whirlwind yeah it was cool
1: yeah and uh i don't know i mean you guys you don't really seem like the uh the band that would be caught up in the excess of, of stardom or anything but the success <laughs> part of everything like what was that like what was that like for you
2: well the, the excess
1: part um we had been on tour john and i had been on tour with trip shakespeare for like
2: seven years before that mm-hmm. and then Semisonic sonic was on tour for that you know three years at that time or something or four so we had already done, you know, basically a mild version of excess. Uh, you know, none of us ended up in hospitals or rehab or anything like that. And we had, you know, gotten our yaya's out to a degree and none of us were, none of us were in it for excess. We just really, really wanted to make tracks, you know?
1: Right.
2: So, so we had already kind of, we were road, you know, battle hardened uh, in on tour, you know, and we were ready to do it. But what the excessive part, turns out, is just what you're expected to cram into your day becomes twice as much or three times as much as you used to. And, you know, it just was suddenly, every day was a visit, you know, in the morning, very early to a radio station and, you know, performing on the air for people and and then, uh, you know, Zooming, either flying or, or busing to the next venue, doing a lot of interviews, talking all day, doing a gig, meeting fans trying to see the friends that you know in that town, staying up late, getting on the bus, waking up five hours later. It, it was just kind of, um, it was like having a super-duper busy job all the time every day and, and, and getting five hours of sleep or less. And I don't know, I, I, I found it super fun. I, I liked it, and uh, it was really tiring, but we were all—we were sort of up for it. You know, we had all had the artistic doldrums parts of our lives already, because when you're first starting out, no one wants to talk to you. So we had already done that. Uh, with nothing to do for weeks on end, you know, we were all really ready for to,
1: to get to work. I, I always like asking, like, you know, with that success, though, it usually leads to at least one or two bizarre rock star moments. You know, those surreal things that you catch. And do you, do you have any, you know, good stories of the time uh, of that ilk?
2: Well, I, most of them were just like fan moments. I, you know, when when John and Jake and I were getting ready to play at the American Music Awards, we were in a hallway... Behind the stage, just a hallway, not a dressing room, nothing fancy, just a you know fluorescent lights and tile floors, and uh, we were standing, you know, taking our our places to eventually get up on the stage. And Whitney Houston was there with her two backup singers practicing something they were going to perform, and they were practicing their their harmony, a, a very beautiful kind of gospely harmony thing they were going to do in this pop song that she was going to play, and it was. It was unbelievably beautiful and exciting. And, you know, of course, they were beautiful people. And we were just standing there, and it was almost like we're in, you know, Valhalla with the gods or something and 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 then Stevie Wonder he came by and like listened and stood while they sang for a little while just enjoying and smiling and and for Jacob who was a Stevie fan from his childhood and so was I that added to this level of surrealism because we were such fanboys you know and and here are these people you know unbelievable singers practicing you know hard it was an example to us they were right up to the second they're going on stage they were getting it exactly right and tightening it up and then there's me and John and Jake and the TV freaking wonder, you know, <laughs> listening. <laughs> that was surreal, man. No, I know, bet.
1: like that. I was trying to figure out which song I want to go with here. First off, though, getting back to the record, you know, I think singing in my sleep because you mentioned that a few times. Uh, one of the greatest rock songs ever, to me, at least. Oh, cool, man. I don't know Thank if you. you've, I don't know if you've seen your uh, performance on the Late Show uh, lately. Uh, I went back and found it no. on YouTube. You've got a really good hip swivel dance that you were doing a lot of the time. <laughs> Yes is that your nor- do you still yes. do the hip swivel dance is that your move is that your is you know, that your move it, 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 if yeah if the
2: if the mood strikes me if the if the if it feels good up there There's some somehow like I like I used to sing and kind of dance a little bit while I sang and if you're singing the whole time you're you're basically the top of your body your head has to stay in the same place you know if you're not holding the mic and and so all the dances kind of radiate down from the neck you know so the swiveling hips just come from not really being able to move the head around too much I guess but what? I was never much of a dancer that's probably good that I was tethered to the microphone
1: I think uh, I think Father John Misty learned, uh, learned your moves I think he's stolen that one i've seen him pull that one a few times so.
2: <laughs> hey i'd be happy to be as charming as he is on stage i he's, think he's really fascinating
1: very charming man uh, that is true yeah uh, and and yeah. we'll hit the third single while we're here too because secret smile yeah. i want to say that intro uh, just paints the entire picture of everything yeah. to come like everything you'd want yeah. out of an intro of a song um, tell me about that one if there's if there's a good story
2: Well, uh, Secret Smile was an amazing experience for me, the song, because one morning, very early in the morning, I was sleeping and I woke up with the song in my head. I dreamed the song. And I ran over to my, um, electric piano and played it. And I think I might have made a little recording of it or I might have just jotted down the names of the chords and the words. So I had like a verse and a chorus that I dreamed. And then I, then I went back to sleep. And then several hours later, I woke up and I remembered, Oh, there's that song that I wrote in my dream last night I wonder if it's any good and I and I went over to the electric piano and I looked at the chords and I, I you know pieced it together again and sang it to myself and I was thunderstruck because it was so good and then I spent uh, a couple weeks playing it for my friends and saying what is this? What is this song? I, I, I had it in a dream and everybody said oh, I've never heard it before but it's really great and I I've, eventually I wrote another verse for it in a bridge but it really kind of it kind of appeared fully formed and even those chords at the beginning of the song because I went to the electric piano in my apartment and played the chords that's what that's the same instrument we used for the record so i can't even really claim much credit for the for the arrangement, because that that was all part of the dream. I later found out that Paul McCartney had the same exact experience with the song Yesterday,
1: uh-huh, uh-huh.
2: and he and he went around to his friends asking, "What is this? Is this something <laughs> from before? Is this someone else's song?" So I'm in good company. Yeah, know? that song was a gift from the gods. I don't know what that was.
1: I mean, that's um, famously uh, Keith Richards, the uh, the guitar part to Satisfaction, did the same thing too. Seriously? Yeah, he woke up. Whoa. he woke up, had the had the melody in his head while he was sleeping woke up ripped it on guitar and then yeah went back to bed so it's <laughs> amazing i mean i you know it's funny because i think
2: once you're in in that super creative mode where everything's a song and every every chance remark that some friend makes turns into a lyric you know and you're just you'd like a sponge and and it doesn't surprise me in a way that dreams get roped into the process as well as well but how lucky to wake up and remember enough to
1: write it down yeah no know? joke there, yeah, there's um, yeah. There's, there's actually another famous story. It's a much funnier on the other side of it. Uh, are you familiar with Bill Callahan? Uh, Smog, um, he used to be called as well. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. He, he has a song called Maw Clackshaw," and the whole song is about having a dream about a song and scribbling it down and then going back to sleep. But when he wakes up the next day, he can't understand what the hell he wrote down, <laughs> and it looks like it says maw Clackshaw," and he's like, "What does that mean?" <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably more typical. <laughs> yeah, it ends up yeah. being one of my favorite songs of his too. But um, not what we. Oh my god! To... I'm, gonna, I'm totally gonna look it up. You have to. It's it's such a great song. It really is bizarre but great. So I read, though, for this, you know, it's funny that you talk about just wanting to get in the studio and create, because as I read here, you wrote around 60 songs for what would end up being this record. You recorded 20 of them, yeah. mixed 16, yeah. and used 12. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, brutal. So... A brutal weeding out. What happened to all the other songs? Did any of those end up having a life on the next record or or down the line, or are they just fragments lost mm-hmm. to the wind? Well, I did write 60 songs. I
2: played them all for, for the guys and for our, and probably 40 of them for our producer, Nick Lone. There were definitely, you know, 20 that were just not great. And it was plain that they weren't, but I was kind of in a mode where I wasn't saying that everything I did was great. I just was not going to decide if it was great. And I would just play it for the guys. we made a lot of demos, very simple. And, um, and I, and I just tried to not decide right away whether something was any good. So I wrote a lot of songs, and, and a bunch of them, if you were to say 60 songs, you, you might want to say he wrote 30 really good songs and 30 <laughs> bad songs. you know. But then it was still all, was still all the weeding out, and, I, and Nick, Nick was really good about um, almost like hearing what songs would, would represent us best. Like what would rock, but but be interesting? Or you know, like uh, Nick thought of his uh, thought of us as a, a smart rock band, basically. So he just wanted things to rock mostly and to be funny or in, or intelligent or you know insightful and those were his you know he wanted it to present us in the best light so he weeded out a bunch of them and we argued a little bit and then a couple like were problems I could never solve there was one called one true love and I had a whole version of the song and the band we could never really quite agree how to play it and it always seemed a little bit flawed and later uh, it didn't make the record and I brought it to a session that I did with Carol King which was also a kind of like like, unbelievable surreal moment for me but i brought i brought one true love to carol king and she rewrote she wrote a whole new verse melody for it and kind of re basically like we threw out a bunch of it and like rewrote a whole bunch of other things for it and it became really really good so there were several that that had later lives and there were a bunch that if, if i you know if i heard them now i'm sure i'd i'd remember them vividly but i'd also know why we didn't choose them
1: <laughs> right but you know i i'll say this too 16 were mixed only 12 were used <laughs> which, which means there are four lying around out there somewhere <laughs> yeah
2: yeah, and it's funny because I, I feel sometimes I feel like b- sides you know or or um, the outtakes. Mm-hmm. they got taken out for a reason. like I, like I, I go back to the Beatles a lot. there's I don't know if there's t- 10 Beatles outtakes, but none of them are that good. In my humble opinion, they're they were smart. they left out they left out, the, <laughs> they left out the, the excess you know and only released the great stuff. Yeah. And I feel like for our, maybe for our, you know, there were a couple outtakes. There was one called Long Way From Home that I really love and that I still can listen to. And, and, and it just, it just didn't make the cut. And, um, you know, there were a couple others that I think I was in such a mellow mood with some of my writing. So there were a couple others that if we'd included them on Feeling Strangely Fine, it just would have become like too many ballads, you know, too much mellowness and gentleness. So we had to keep the energy higher rather than letting it be too too you know singer songwritery,
1: which I'm all for. I mean, there's a lot of my favorite records that's just a few tracks too long. You know when when that happens, yeah. Like I completely understand. Yeah. (laughs) Excuse me. Well, I mean, I'll 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 keep pushing a little bit more on that. Do you think you'll ever put them out? Are you gonna ever like think you'll ever send those out into the world? You'll ever feel comfortable enough?
2: Uh, Yeah. Some of them. I mean, uh, there's hardly any. You know, I I don't think. Spotify or even YouTube have caught up with the last of our B-sides, but we put out a lot of singles and B-sides and things. You know, we, we we wanted to be prolific. We didn't want our albums to be too long. That was always a struggle to try to make them shorter. But we always tried to, like, find ways for fans to have the alternate, you know, versions. My favorite um, outtakes that I that I hope we can find a way to release eventually or actually the demos that never even got recorded. I, I think sometimes those have more, they have more emotion and they have more, it's more like you're, uh, it's, a, it's a, a glimpse into how we made the music, but also those songs didn't try and fail. You know, they just mm-hmm. never got, never got cut. So some of those demos, I, I hope we get a chance to release those.
1: I hope so too. Well, you've got all year if you want to make it for a 25th or, a, you know, or whatever. So, you know, I, I can be hopeful on that one. Um, <laughs> and uh, i know you guys have, have you played a show in december too um you you, you think it's going to be more are you gonna do the full album show tour or anything like that in the plans i you know there's there's no specific
2: plan to do a full album tour but we did play in minneapolis uh all of feeling strangely fine in uh in december of last year and it was it was pretty great it's pretty mind-blowing for us it was fun to play those songs and in, the, in that order and not have to think about the other parts of our repertoire and and uh, I, 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 I put it this way. I certainly am waving the flag internally for us to you know do some more gigs like that because it felt special to me. I hope it happens because um, happily, Jacob and John and I are still really good friends and we've made music and done various projects together, even over the years when Semisonic hasn't been active. And you know, both of them have played on my solo records and Jacob, uh, the drummer, has written a whole bunch of uh, arrangements for me, including one that I did with the, uh, that I recorded with the Kronos Quartet uh, last year. So Jacob is a, and Jacob, obviously he's working on his second book. He's a very talented guy, and John's an impresario in Minneapolis with two really great bands, and we do gigs together quite a bit.
1: Yeah, well, cool. Well, what's uh, what, what are you doing next then? Too are you are you still writing with? Uh, I guess I should say it, that you can are allowed to tell me, <laughs> huh. like who you're writing with these days, or, or what's next on the uh, on the docket for you. Well, I, it's, I don't,
2: uh, let's see, what, what's next on the docket? I, I, last year I did a lot of, um, I spent a lot of time on releasing my album Recovered, which is a kind of retrospective of things that I wrote for, for other people. And that was super fun and very time consuming. And this year, I'm not, I'm not working on that anymore. And so I have a lot more time to, to write again with other artists. Right now, there's a bunch of things out. Um, I have a song called We're Going Home. That I did with Vance Joy and that's out as a single right now. I've got a song with Halsey called Alone. I have uh, probably like five songs of mine right now out in the world and a whole bunch more coming out on albums. Some of the things I'm working on right now, yeah, I can't talk about who they are, but there's a couple of of, uh, big stars and a couple of brand new people that are really brilliant and I I continue to be very fortunate in my collaborators. Yeah, what a great way to It's have actually a possible to yeah, and you can find super inspired musical geniuses who are uh, kind or at least fun. It's 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 amazing how many of
1: the people I work with are just good eggs, even though they're brilliant. It's sort of it's such an interesting way to have a career because. You know, you're you're behind the scenes a lot these days, uh, writing these songs with Halsey and, and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And so there's, I'm sure, a large amount of people who don't know that that's that version of your life. And and Recovered was a nice way to bridge that gap. But to some people, yeah. you know, <laughs> you'll forever be the Closing Time guy, right? Yes, and why not? I, I, you know, one of my, like,
2: Semisonic had two worldwide hits, Secret Smile and and Closing Time, and they forever changed our lives. And then we had a bunch of other things that got played in the radio and we toured. We, we had we had the opportunity to play in front of, I don't know, tens of thousands of people at one time, many times. And, you know, in the aggregate, who knows how many, you know, tons and tons and tons of people. We had so much fun. We did that. We had that many bites of that apple, you know, and now when I'm working with other artists, like when I did the last Fantagram record with Fantagram and Ricky Reed, we, I was picturing them being, being on really big stages and like I could actually be there in my imagination with them and enjoy it. And like a lot of times when I'm writing with somebody new, I, I get to enjoy the thought that maybe this thing we're writing is going to bring them to that crazy whirlwind that I had the chance to be part of, you know? And I think that's, I don't need to do closing time again and again and again for the rest of my life. Like I did that and it's amazing and special. And now I help other people have that same experience. And that's incredible.
1: What a beautiful sentiment right there. Yeah. Very much so. And if we were, if we were already edited, this is where we would hear the line, I hope you last a long, long time. Oh, I love that. (laughs) That's what would be happening right here. I love that. Uh, uh, This was uh, so much fun, Dan. Thank you for giving me the time to uh, live out a lot of my teenage geek dreams uh, with the interviews that I was never able to do in my bedroom.
2: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we, who we don't get the chance to interview the people we want to when we're 16. <laughs> it right. just doesn't happen. <laughs> but yeah, thank you very much.
1: Yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, keep us updated, and um, yeah. can't wait till your next project comes around. And if nothing else, then we'll just do this uh, when the uh, chemistry uh, record comes around, and we get to do it that anniversary. Yes, which
2: is a lovely thought as well. I'm, 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 I'm
1: looking forward to that when the time comes. All right, man. Have a great day. We'll see you. Thank you, Kyle. All right, thank you. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to Consequence of Sound's YouTube channel for more interviews with your favorite artists and for good radio, wfpk.org. I'm Kyle Meredith. I'll see you next time.
0: When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes.